Welcome to 8020 with Pareto Health. I'm Andrew Cavanaugh. And I'm Andrew Clayton. On today's episode, our standard three-part format, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about how stop-loss carriers come up with expected rates. We'll then spend a little bit of time with our friend Kara Kirsch, uh, and we will end the episode as we do with every episode with our So You Know They're a Knucklehead When. And the idea there is that we make fun of something stupid that we've seen in the industry. So thanks for joining us today. So in each of our episodes, uh, we try to spend a minute or two teaching our audience just one thing. So today we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about how a stop-loss carrier comes up um, with an expected loss. Uh, An expected loss typically has two components. There's the uh, specific expected loss and the aggregate expected loss. So Clayton, manual rates. We hear them about them in the industry all the time. What's a manual rate? A manual rate is what the carrier uses to balance the expected claims of an individual account against their general book of business. So they look at their experience, they lean on actuarial analysis, both internal and external. Um, factors that go into it are the industry of the employer, the employer's location, their geography, cost of care relative to their geography, and then the demographics. So age, sex, those are the key factors that go into the development of manual rates. So if I said that in a way that people could actually understand, if I put age, sex, geography, and industry into a model, it spits out the rates for that employer before I know anything else or before I learn anything else about it. So it's sort of what we would expect uh, just on those four data points. Is that fair? That's fair. That's a good way of dumbing it down, which is one thing you excel at. Yep. So we have a manual rate and that says, okay, before we know anything else, this is what we should charge. So hundred bucks, pick a number. But then we actually have experience in some cases. If someone's coming from fully insured, it's fairly limited. If somebody is already self-insured, then there's fairly extensive data. How, how does a carrier use a manual rate as compared to actual loss experience? So using your hundred buck example, they'll look at and say the individual employer's experience is actually $80. And they want to take a balance of that and say individual employer, great, that's a data point. Their size um, has an influence on how much emphasis they put on the 80 versus the hundred. So if they're using a 50-50 blend, meaning that they're saying the employer's experience is worth half of what we project their cost to be, we'll use our manual for the other half. And they'll meet in the middle and say half of you know 80 plus 100 is 180, divide that in half, we get to $90 at their expected claims. So our general assumption on this podcast is that the people listening might not know a ton about self-insurance, but I am glad that you explained what 50-50 means, even though I probably would have assumed uh, that they might know that. So I'm sure they're, they're very appreciative uh, of that. So explain to me why the bigger the account, um, the less we use manual rates and the more we use actual. Yeah. The, so the bigger the account, the more statistic. again, I'm, tr- I'm trying to dumb it down. I know it's small words. It's a big word. There you go. Yeah. No. Yeah. Right. Stats. Stats. Exactly. Um, so the bigger you are, the more likely you're going to have a repeatable outcome. And so as employer size grows, uh, their losses become more consistent year over year. There's less swing and less volatility. But the smaller you are, a moment in time might be exceptional and a moment in time might also be really unfortunate or really bad from a risk perspective. And so they want to blend that uh, across a larger population. So let's geek out a little bit um, just as sort of the final part of this. Um, we're talking about size relative to coming up with expected losses versus manual. But what we really want to do at some point is cut those losses into two parts, right? You want the the claims that are above the specific stop loss and the claims that are below. And, and so again, just pick a random number. Let's pretend we have an account where they have $100,000 specific stop loss 
the frequency um, of claims that go above that's going to be pretty small unless they're a massive account. Whereas the frequency of smaller claims, you know, your knees, your hips, your primary care, maybe a rotator cuff surgery, something like that are going to be below the 100,000. And so when I think about manual rates versus actual claims, I need to think about those two types of stop loss differently, don't I? Yeah, you absolutely do. Yeah. And so specific stop loss um, simply is the employer's responsibility, their individual deductible, and they're buying insurance above that. Uh, but sticking with the large employer, small employer, for a large employer, $100,000 deductible is totally reasonable. They'll look at that and say, we have the wherewithal and the comfort to pay for the knees and the hips and things like that, but they want protection for what they would view as, as truly volatile and catastrophic claims. A smaller employer would say, I'm willing to pay for um, some simplified surgeries or some simplified medical practices, but I want coverage for things that are above forty dollars or $50,000 because at my total spend, that is a, a big swing in experience for me. Yep. And when we're rating those different buckets, if I think about an account that has maybe 150 employees, they might only have in any given year one or two claims uh, that are above 50000 And so it's hard to use just experience. Uh, to come up with what the expected claim should be above 50. And so you have to lean more heavily on the manual rates. Whereas below 50, that's where they're going to have a lot of activity and their actual experience is going to be weighted more heavily. Correct. Great contribution there. <laughs> Happy to help. All right. So there you have it, folks, on how a stop-loss carrier comes up uh, with claims. They're balancing manual rates, which is sort of the before-I-knew-anything-else, largely based on age, sex, geography, and industry. Uh, they then blend that with the the account's actual claim experience, and they weight the claim experience more heavily when setting aggregate factors than they do on specific stop-loss premiums, uh, just because they don't have as much data. The bigger the account, uh, the more they weight um, on the actual experience as opposed to manual rates. So might seem pretty basic, but I think it's a building block for future podcasts and knowledge sessions. Thanks, Kevin Clayton. Now enjoy this conversation with Kara Kirsch, Area Vice President for Gallagher, based out of Omaha, Nebraska. So Kara, tell us how you got into the employee benefits space. How'd you become a consultant? I've been in the industry for 25 years and started on the HR side while I was a, you know, baby consultant, I'll call it. And then um, progressed through the insurance carrier world, was with United Healthcare for nine years and Blue Cross for two. And when I left Blue Cross, I was recruited by several firms and landed at a firm and and didn't was a little unsure at that time as to whether I could really help employers solve challenges that they faced. And turns out I can. So that's how I got in. And that was about, I'm entering my eighth year of consulting. Awesome. And we'll certainly vouch for your ability to, to help them out. Um, Thanks. <laughs> that's a, so that's a pretty big step. You go from the, the warm and comfy of a big insurance company into the uh, unknown world of, of, can I really impact change? Will it change? Will I be able to find a client base? Um, how was that, that first step? It was terrifying. I remember at the time, um, our leader came to my office on my first day and he said, here's your Amex, here's your cell phone, go. And I'm like, go where? <laughs> where is the lead generation? Where is my pipeline? How am I going to do this? And, you know, for a month, I watched other producers 
and I was the only female producer in the firm. And so after a month, I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to do it exactly like everyone else. So I'm going to have to do it my own way. And my own way was just with a lot of genuine curiosity around how to build relationships with people and ask questions that maybe others were afraid to ask and to not give up. So if someone said, hey, Kara, we're happy or we don't need you right now, it was never a fine, I'll never talk to you again. It was a, okay, we'll all stay in touch. And when you're ready, I'm here. And not to give away your secret sauce, um, but what are some of the uh, the questions that that you ask that get the you know most insightful response, or uh, that you think some of the other people are too much of a wallflower to ask? I think uh, one of the questions that I love to ask is when people say, "I'll say, well, tell me about your consulting relationship," and they'll say, oh, "We really love our consultant." Okay, why? Well, they give us great service, and I'm like, "That's great." Um, do they reduce your healthcare costs? And then they'll say, well, not really. And then I'll say, well, do you think they should? Do you think they should have a responsibility in that? Kara, um, you've done a lot of wonderful things for your clients over the years. If you have to pick one thing, one example, um, that you're most proud of, uh, that you've done on behalf of a client, what would that be? I took a client that was getting a fully insured increase greater than 50% moved him self-funded and saved him 3 million bucks over three years. That's certainly a good one. So you spent a, a, a decade at, at, you know, two of the largest um, insurance companies. Any aha moments when you said, wait a minute, I'm not so sure about the way um, <laughs> the industry is, is operating and there might be an opportunity for us to do a little bit better. Well, yes, many of them. I never really thought about a career in benefits until I joined United Healthcare. And I saw the difference I could make with clients in terms of breaking down the barriers within such a large organization. And I was never afraid to really even challenge the status quo at that time. And I was not afraid to help customers understand what we were really good at and what we weren't really very good at. And I think that it created a mentality around this uh, thought of get me to yes. So when I would go to different parts of the organization, whether at United or Blue Cross, and people would say, well, Kara, we don't really do that. Or how are we going to do that? I'd say, well, what could we do? Get me to yes. And 99% of the time they would. And that's where I would really find my aha moments is, okay, well, you know, why did it take so long for one person from Nebraska to ask for that when across the system, we should be doing that regularly for all of our clients? My opinion is that get me to yes is something that um, is developed, you know, throughout your life, typically at a, at a younger age, but you don't get to our stage in the career and all of a sudden switch and say, oh, now I'm going to be a, a person that's really driven and, and really focused on getting us to yes. So just curious what, uh, you know, part of your background, nature, nurture got you to be the point where you're that driven and persistent. Well, I'm the oldest child and the only girl in my family. Um, I was raised in a small town for the majority of my life. I, my dad was in the military, so we moved a lot as when I was a child, young child. But I grew up in a small town, and there were 17 kids in my class, four girls. 
And in a small town, um, it's such a great opportunity. I wish kids could experience it at least a little bit because it does give you the opportunity to raise your hand and find a solution for every problem because you don't have access the same way that everybody else has. So think about just even the sports teams. They're like, hey, Kara, you're tall. You could play basketball. I played for one season and I was like, I'm out. I'll run track and I'll play volleyball, but basketball is not my jam. Um, but they said, you know, we need people to lead on the future business leader side. And I was completely unafraid. I think about it now. And that was getting my own self to yes. So then as I grew up in my career and I was part of these huge corporations where there was a lot of bureaucratic red tape, I would say, wait a minute, there's got to be a way. I used to make comments at United like this. We're an $80 billion enterprise. There has to be a solution. What's the solution? On the employer side, and and the industry does a great job of promoting, and the industry being the, the health insurance space, um, of promoting what they want the employers to hear. So what's one or two things that you wish employers knew uh, or had better insight into? There's a lot of promotion of messages that are not necessarily 100% in the best interest of the employer. And one of the things that I wish there was more discussion around is data, how to use data to make different decisions. What is the appropriate kind of data that you should be expecting? Um, anything from if I'm fully insured and I'm over 50 or 100 and I'm not getting premium versus claims information. Oh, but I got a 3% increase and I'm happy with that, but I never got premium versus claims. Like, how do you know 3% was a good deal? Well, because you've been trained to believe that trend is 7 to 10% or 7 to 12%. So you were below trend. So, ah, you're winning. That's one. Um, the second is that, it, you know, what employees will do for money. And here's what I mean. If you incent employees in the correct ways, they will take action the way you want. It's not going to be seen as a takeaway. But everyone thinks that when you start to create strategy around specific areas of cost that you have to take things away. That's just not true. Well, you need a narrow network. Well, yeah, I love narrow networks, but what, what value is it going to bring to the employee? Oh, well, you need a centers of excellence strategy. Okay. Yeah, that's great. But how is that going to bring value to the employee? Because most American families don't have $500 in savings. Kara, I don't know if you've heard me um, out of the members' meetings talk about knuckleheads. Uh, it's the phrase that I use to describe the, the subsection of the brokerage industry that I think doesn't do a whole lot of thinking. Um, and it's my polite way, my polite way of, uh, uh, of throwing some shade on them. And as part of this podcast, each, each podcast is going to have a segment called, you know, they're a knucklehead when. And the idea is just to identify things that are that are sort of stupid in the industry, the stupid things that we see people doing. And so, you know, putting you on the spot a little bit, could you give us um, an example or two of something that you see, whether it's your competitors or or just somebody else in the brokerage industry do that you're like, wow, that is just really, that's really a knucklehead right there. No names unless you, of course, want to use their names and then we'll publish them uh, in bright lights and neon. So no names. Um, one of the things that you'll know about me is that I am very respectful of my competition, even if I know I'm going to eat their lunch. I like their lunch with seasoning. So I like to be competitive. I like to be um, purposefully respectful. 
Um, but one of the things that I think happens with those that aren't willing to roll their sleeves up is they tell employers that are not, you know, 300 lives, you, you shouldn't be self-funded. You know, your exposure is unlimited in a self-funded plan. Or you don't have the resources from a compliance perspective to manage a self-funded plan. So the fear that's created with the employer is instilled in them in multiple ways and is very difficult to break through for someone who uses a more common sense approach to solving the problem of rising cost. So even when you go in after a broker who does that has said those things to an employer, it's almost as if they don't believe you. And so one of the things I've started to talk more about too is contingency-based compensation. Okay, you don't believe me? If you don't, I'll put a portion of my compensation at risk or I won't collect a portion of my compensation to show you that I'm telling you the truth. And I will tell you that never have I lost those deals. Never have I had to repay for a commitment that I made to a client. So be honest about the work that we are supposed to be doing for our clients, which is to help them create value. And value is defined as many things. Value is not summarized in a once a year spreadsheet. That's the thing that drives me nuts is that's the manifestation of my entire life's work is to give a spreadsheet that shows rates for one year. Um, there's nothing that frustrates me more than seeing that in our industry because it gives it gives the industry um, uh, a bad reputation that that's all we can come up with. Totally. One of the recent examples that Libby and I have, and I'm gonna I have to Clayton and and Kavanaugh give a shout out to Libby because she's my girl and um, I trust her immensely not only with um, you know my own personal business but also how I grow my professional business, but. Libby and I were working on an opportunity recently, and it was complicated, very complicated. And um, one of the national carriers came in at 8% eight to 10% above current, and the self-funded option was just a little bit more than that. So I get on the phone with them to review their options, and I'm like, well, Carol, we don't see any reason why we would even consider self-funding. And I said, well, let me just say this. The national carrier that gave you a quote gave it to you based on no data. So they're basing it specifically on your census and maybe some pharmacy data. And they're at 10% above, which says they're probably at zero. So you would be remiss to take the easy option. And I will stand right with you to implement the right option. Do you trust me to do that? And they were like, yes, Carol, we do. They weren't planning to go self-funded for three years, but now they don't have to leave money on the table. And it's not easy. It's been freaking hard. But you know what? I can't sleep at night knowing that someone's going to get taken advantage of. A couple of comments on that, Kara. The first is that we have a rule within Pareto, never compliment somebody to their face. Um, <laughs> but, but Libby's not on this, and so it's okay. We can compliment her, and we'll just tell her it's not about her. Uh, when she listens to the actual podcast. Um, but then moving past that, um, it is one of the frustrating parts of the industry is that the employers have been told over and over and over again that self-insurance is risky, fully insured is safe. 
Um, and it takes five minutes with an employer if they're willing to listen, if they're willing to open their eyes um, to, to, to the reality that fully insured is unlimited in terms of the increase that you can get. Um, if you break down the pulling point, and we'll do a segment at some point on this podcast to try to do that, you're yeah. still self-insured either way. You just don't have an aggregate and you have really high expenses and no data. Yes. Um, but they hear it over and over again. And no ability to actually affect what is driving your cost. Because what we've done is we've created broad base fixes to cost problems. So, okay, you're getting a 10% renewal. Let's buy down the deductible and raise it for employees who, by the way, make $12 an hour or $15 an hour. That's a great idea. Or let's charge the employee more premium rather than if there's a specialty medication driving your cost, let's get that the heck out of there and pay for it in a different way if we can and not penalize all the employees because of one thing that's happening in the plan. And by the way, there will be more things that happen and we will respond accordingly. And you can't do it without direction to the employer. You can't just present options to them and say, you choose, right? It's so refreshing to have the opportunity to work with people that have the backbone to say, if it were my company, I would do X um, yes. and act on it. Yeah, I've moved two clients self-funded with Pareto off cycle. It's about the right thing. We were talking to a large, and again, no names, large national firm at one point. Um, and we said, it's incredibly important to us that that you're making a recommendation. We don't believe that what we do is right for everybody, but where it is right, you need to make the recommendation. And they said, Andrew, we don't do that. We're a consultant. We provide options. We don't give advice. And I'm thinking, well, then what's the employer paying you for? Um, that's what the the, the mid-market employer needs is advice. Um, and if all you want to do is, you know, uh, again, create options, create spreadsheets, then there's then there's not a whole lot of value in that. That's also the... Uh, not the definition of a consultant. You're right. a bro you're a broker. <laughs> right. You know what though? That goes back to your earlier question around what doesn't happen in the industry is recommendations. So why would someone be afraid to give a recommendation? Because they're afraid it's not a good one. Or it's gonna cause them extra work or it's gonna cause them lost revenue. I just simply do not believe that. Let's go uh, a slightly different direction, if you don't mind. What would your today self tell your 10 years ago self uh, about the world we're in today? First of all, I would have started my own firm, 100%, no question. I'm an entrepreneur inside my soul, and I've been able to be an entrepreneur, which is to use those skills and capabilities inside of large organizations to affect change. Um, but had I known what my capability really was, no question. So my dream is to teach young women that so that they will do it. And hopefully at some point in my life, I'll have money enough that I can seed those women and coach them and teach them how to differentiate themselves better than maybe I was comfortable at the time. You know, I think personally, what prevented me from taking that leap is I'm a single parent. I've been a single parent for 17 years and my children were all counting on me. And even though I felt like any, I, I could do anything, anything was possible. I just always felt that, well, what if? And so now in my life, it's about pushing young women to believe it and do it and have the right people surrounding them so that they're successful. The smart ass comment about the insurance industry is three things, male, pale, and stale, right? Old white men. Um, and you're talking to two old white men right now. How do we change that in the industry? How do we get more diversity? 
Easy. I just said to Clayton, he looked younger today. He looks like he got he had his hair done before this. Right. I mean, did you go to a glam crew before you came, Clayton? <laughs> thank that's, you. That's thank that's you, not what the you. industry needs right now. We need something. We need something different than Clayton getting a new haircut. I would guess that all of us are around the same age, and it's on us. And so, how are we reaching back into the colleges, universities, high schools to say insurance is not sexy? But sitting with a CEO, the CFO, the vice president of HR is so much fun. And the hunt is so much fun. And the reward is so much fun. And don't you want to have that kind of fun? Oh, and by the way, make a good living to take care of a family. The more we can talk about that as not insurance industry people, as people that actually have a passion for solving business challenges, the more likely we are to pull people with us. And I believe, and this is why I did something five years ago, I founded an organization called Ignite Women in Insurance. We have an annual conference. And the purpose of that conference is to remind women in this industry that the ceiling is, it's just not there. You can rise above. And so to your point, continuing to bring that group together and reaching into the universities across the country to send their women so that they can be exposed to the greatness in the room. That is the way to get them there. That includes minority women. So how do we get minority women to get a seat at the table? Minority young men to get a seat at the table. That is my, my life's mission. I will not sit tight until there are more women producing business just like me. I think that's fantastic. Um, the industry does get a bad rap and it is not the glamorous thing. Um, and you don't realize until you spend a little time in it, how many parts of the economy it touches, how necessary it is. You can get rid of a lot of different things. You can't get rid of insurance. Yeah. So if you, um, weren't in insurance, what what would you be doing? In my vision of my life is a food truck and I'm going to have one. I just became an empty nester last year. So now I have a little bit more time on my hands and I don't want work to be my hobby. It's always been my hobby and I want to find something else. And so that's going to come true. I'll have a food truck and we'll have, you know, it won't have a menu. You'll just walk up and know that you're going to get either something sweet, something savory or something vegan. It'll be one of those and you'll get just a great vibe and there'll be music and maybe live guitar outside. And so that's what I'd be doing. You and Clayton may be kindred spirits. He has dreamed for years of opening a soup-only restaurant, um, but it's a unique approach, which is that he's not going to tell you what soups he has that day. Yeah. Um, so you have to show up, and all he serves is soup. Yeah, uh, I love that. We're a fast-growing organization, the soup company. We're looking for a couple of, of influential investors. I would invest in your food truck, Kara. I'm not investing in the soup, whatever. Well, you better rethink that. Soup bucks. Think of it. It's going to be everywhere. What's the strangest way that you've uh, that you've created or uh, partnered with a new client? Because you're out there, you're you're vocal, you're loud. What's the what's the way that you've uh, developed a relationship and met them on the plane? Mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, started a food truck with them. Gosh, I think one of the things that differentiates me is that I'm not afraid to ask what I call provocative questions. And just curious, you said you'd like to ask pr- provocative questions, uh, yeah. what some of those are. And whether it's one you'd ask to an employer or one you want to ask to Clayton right now, I'm okay with either. 
Yeah, no. One of the ones I ask to employers is what's your least favorite benefit meeting of the year? Which meeting do you think it is? Open enrollment or renewal? Renewal. Maybe. Renewal. Yeah. Yep. 100% unanimous renewal. So then my question is, well, why do you not like it? What degree of bad news am I going to get today? Correct. That's right. Well, how would you like it if, and then I create a story around the possibilities. It is possible to create benefit plans that actually provide rewards to people in terms of more compensation if they do what you're asking them to do. There is the ability to create benefit plans that have targets that the whole company is shooting for, no different than sales or production. Employers need more of us and our time than ever before. You cannot just have three meetings a year. You have to be continuously having discussions about ways that their business is changing. This is probably one of my best, best stories um, is I was meeting with a prospect in 2016 and, you know, get through the HR conversations and finally get up to the CFO and the CFO says, Kara, we really like you. We want to hire you, but our current broker is working for free. And I said, really? And I said, tell me more. Why do you think that? Well, we never get a bill from them. We never see what they're getting paid. So they're just working for free. And I said, I'll tell you what, I will work for free for one year if they're working for free. How much do you guys think his compensation was? 100 Life Group. I'm not sure I'm going to wade into that poll. 75 grand. Yeah, 70 grand. grand. Yeah. yeah. Now, imagine being the CEO or the CFO of an organization and not knowing that. Yeah. And imagine now the road that's been paved for someone like me to come along and make sure that that never happens to them again. It's great. Great for the employers that they have somebody like you. One of the things I would say, and, and I mean this both as a compliment, but also as a challenge to the rest of the industry, is that one of the reasons that you're so successful is because you're authentic, because you're genuine, and that comes across in your passion. But so many people within the industry play a role as opposed to saying to someone, look, bet on me, bet on us together, and I will invest my time, my energy, my commitment to make sure that you have a better experience. Uh, but I think that authenticity, unfortunately, is rare, but I also want to compliment you that it's a, a great reason uh, for your success. Well, thank you. It's, you know, it's also a reason sometimes I don't get picked. They want easy over right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or they don't believe, they don't believe yeah. that what I'm saying is actually possible. And so break, one of the things I've thought a lot about is my approach when it comes to being authentic and having passion, but not being scary. Or you can just be like Kavanaugh and not care. <laughs> huh? Say what? What? <laughs> So as a final as a final <laughs> comment, Kara, um, I joke um, that insurance isn't uh, isn't ever popular at a cocktail party. Uh, and so, just curious, you're at a cocktail party and someone says, "What do you do?" What's your answer? I help employers solve the challenge of rising healthcare costs. I never say I do insurance. I always say I help employers. Well, what do you mean? How do you help them? I create. I help. I support. I navigate. I lead. It's never about insurance. But I will say, my dad still thinks I sell insurance. Well, Kara, thank you very much uh, for the time today. It's been wonderful having you uh, and hearing the stories. 
Thanks for having me. I'm so, so grateful for the partnership with you guys and, um, you know, continuing to do this work that isn't easy, but really important. And hopefully we'll continue to make the kind of progress that we want in getting employers to understand that they have power. My goal is to bring their power back to them. And the best thing that they can say to me after I meet with them is, Kara, I didn't know that. And now for the last segment of our episode before, because this is the place where Clayton or I, but typically Clayton, put our foot in our mouth. So get ready for, you know, they're a knucklehead when. When we look at the the now infamous renewal spreadsheet that a lot of brokers put together, um, if they're looking hey, at- Hey, 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 take it easy, man. They put a lot of time and effort and fancy colors into that thing. Yeah, sometimes there's colors. Uh, rarely is there a second tab. We'll talk about that in, in a in a in a future um, a future knucklehead segment, I suspect. But when you look at the sp- spreadsheet, it's going to have a column for every one of the options, and then anything that is self-insured. Invariably, there will be something about the fixed cost and the premium at the top. There will then be a row for expected claims. There will then be a maximum, and at the bottom, they will add up a bunch of those rows to show you expected costs as well as maximum cost. So that's the preface for what we're talking about today. What we see time and time again is on these spreadsheets, the the broker will have a quote. Let's just pick hypothetical companies. So they'll have a quote from HCC and a quote from Swiss Re. And the quote from HCC might have an aggregate attachment point of a million dollars. And the quote from Swiss Re might have an aggregate attachment point of a million one. And so what the broker does is they put expected claims at 80%. Um, of the aggregate attachment on the theory that there is a 25% quarter. You come up with your expected loss and multiply it times 1.25. That takes you to um, your aggregate attachment. So in the HCC example, $800,000 expected loss, multiply it times 1.25 for a 25% corridor gets you to the million dollars. Um, and so if you're reversing that, you t- multiply it times 0.8. So what they will put on that uh, spreadsheet is 800 grand expected losses for HCC. And I don't know what the math is, but 870, 875 grand for Swiss re. And this, it just blows our minds. So this is an example of, you know, they're a knucklehead when they give you 880, by the way, but that's okay. Hey, Hey, I'm not, I'm not here for the math. 880. So it's the exact same TPA, right? Wait a minute. Who's the knucklehead? (laughs) This is my show. So exact same TPA, exact same network, and somehow because the carrier has set a different aggregate factor, that influences expected loss. So the claims are going to be the same under either scenario, right? They're being adjusted by the same person or paying the same discount. So whatever claims that company has that year, they're going to be exactly the same under both those insurance options. And yet our industry loves to act as if the stop loss carrier is influencing expected claims. Help me out, Clayton. So you're you're saying it correctly. So you have the and you have the same exact as they say in my cousin Vinny, identical. You have the same exact population. You have the same exact network, and you have the same exact care that's going to take place. Nothing has changed under the Swiss Re or the HCC scenario yet, because they valued the the ex- experience differently and the manuals differently. They're giving different aggregates, and all of a sudden the 
broker, we can't call him a consultant, says, well, your expected claims are going to be different, even though all of your underlying characteristics are identical. And to us, that just jumps off the page as a laughable moment that the stop loss carrier who has no influence on your claims experience whatsoever is is setting different expected claims. And the broker will present that and say, we should go with option A because it's cheaper, as opposed to saying we should roll our sleeves up and actually work on our claims instead of just picking a rate or a factor that's going to determine what our efforts are going to be for the next 12 months. So it would be accurate to say that in my example, the HCC maximum is going to be lower, assuming the premiums are similar, but the expected claims should be the same. Swiss Re sitting there in their office has no ability to to will the claims to be higher, right? Just Just want to confirm that. Correct. And they can hold their breath, but I don't think the claims are going to be higher just because of that. Okay. So again, Clayton hit it. I hit it. If the claims are varying, uh, if the expected claims are varying based on aggregate factor, someone's not thinking. They're being a knucklehead. And what they should be sitting there saying is, okay, what is actually likely to happen from an expected claim standpoint? So that is the knucklehead test. If aggregate factors determine expected claims, they're a knucklehead. And Kavanaugh, as a reformed knucklehead, obviously, uh, knows a lot about this subject. And sometimes people can't do math, but that doesn't make them a knucklehead. Thanks for listening to today's episode of 8020 with Pareto Health. We love hearing from you. If you have a question or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at 8020 at ParetoHealth.com. That's 8020 at ParetoHealth.com. Dive deeper into 8020 by visiting us at ParetoHealth.com slash podcast. Lastly, make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you don't miss an episode.